If you would, please turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, an epistle written by the Apostle Paul. It's about midway through your New Testament. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We've been in a series of sermons this summer uh, that we've titled The Happy Church. And the purpose of the series is to uh, commend and to expound the uh, biblical dynamic set forth in the New Testament that make for a happy, life-giving, healthy church environment. In the first message I preached in that series, I qualified what we're getting at with that word happy. We don't mean a church of people that just have plastered on smiles all the time, uh, or have lots of potluck dinners or something like that, uh, but rather we're after the, the virtues the Bible itself would commend that if embodied and exuded by the members of the church make for an appropriately, biblically happy and healthy uh, church environment. And this series of sermons has been preached with the conviction uh, that the church ought to be a community that's hope-filled and that's life-giving and that's encouraging and happy and healthy. And so I want to review with you briefly what we considered in the first five messages and then introduce what we'll be looking at this morning in this sixth and final message in the series. In the first sermon, we established this principle that in the happy church, the membership functions as a family. God has made us to be not just like a family, but to actually be a family. We have God as a common father, and we are more truly brothers and sisters with one another in Christ through his blood than we are even with our blood relations who are outside of Christ. In the second sermon, we said this, that in the happy church, every member is valued. And we look together at 1 Corinthians 12, where Paul uses the image of a body, saying that we as the church are the body of Christ, each one of us is a member of that body, and every member is to be seen as indispensable and vital to the functioning of that body. The third sermon, in the happy church, the members understand the dynamics of sin and grace and their bearing on church life, perhaps the most important sermon in the series, uh, that we would see ourselves, understand ourselves in the way we are understood by the Bible. That is that all of us are sinners, born dead in sin, saved from our sin, yet still struggle with sin even as believers. And we're sinners saved purely, totally, completely, only by the grace of God, by God's unmerited and unearned favor given to us as a gift. Not just to understand that we ourselves are sinners saved by grace, but to appreciate the various implications that has for how we live as a church body together. Uh, the fourth sermon in the happy church, the members take an eager interest in one another's spiritual lives. Uh, that is that we are to feel a sense of ownership with one another, helping one another to heaven, and that the New Testament vision, the New Testament standards set for what our church life should be like must involve meaningful, intentional, thoughtful, regular, deliberate involvement in one another's spiritual lives. And then fifth, last week, we said that the happy church abounds in hope. Now this morning, I'd like to set forth the following principle from God's Word. That is that in the happy church, 
the members make it their regular practice to encourage one another. In the happy church, the members make it their regular practice to encourage one another. I want to extol the biblical practice and virtue of encouragement. Uh, uh, to sort of go alongside this sermon, uh, there's a, a book I read recently. It's actually a recently published book. I have it here with me. It's called Encouragement, Adrenaline for the Soul uh, by a very good and faithful pastor named Mark Chansky who ministers in uh, Michigan, a very wonderful brother. It's a very easy to read kind of book, very short and slender. Uh, we've purchased some copies that are in the bookstall, and this very excellent book is available for the next few weeks at 50% off. And um, I'm drawing heavily from some of the ideas uh, set forth in Pastor Chansky's book and highly recommend uh, that you pick up that book and we'll keep replenishing it as long as people are buying it. And um, an excellent book to read with a brother and sister in the church. Uh, just get together with someone who wants to grow like you in the virtue of encouragement and use that book as a tool. I would commend that to you. So this morning, we want to set forth the following principle in the happy church. The members make it their regular practice to encourage one another. And I've turned your attention to 1 Thessalonians 5. We're just going to read one verse, and it's found in verse 11. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. Let me ask that we pray once more. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would send your spirit upon our gathering to assist us, not only in the exposition of your word, but in the application of it. We pray that we would be a church of your people, happy in God, happy in the gospel of Jesus Christ, and happy in one another. We pray that you would fan into flame within our church body this virtue and grace of mutual encouragement. So bless us now, we pray, in the consideration of your word. And in the consideration of this wonderful subject, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So three headings I'd like to give to our consideration of this topic this morning. This is a topical sermon, but we will look at a number of texts this morning, beginning in 1 Thessalonians 5.11. Three headings. We'll consider first the directive to encouragement, the directive to encouragement. Secondly, biblical models of encouragement, and then thirdly, the effects of encouragement, the directive to encouragement, biblical models of encouragement, and the effects of encouragement. So consider with me first the directive we're given in the Bible to encourage one another. I want to briefly show you how God's Word commends to us, even commands us to make it our regular practice to undertake to encourage one another in the church. That is to say, it's a biblical command that we're to give attention to. Now, I'm using that English word encouragement, and I'm trusting there are certain ideas that populate our minds when I say that word, that there are actually a number of biblical words that could be translated encouragement or a near synonym. Uh, these words are variously translated encourage, comfort, exhort, bless, edify, um, all of which are getting after something that I mean when I use that English word encouragement. The most common Greek word I'm working with this morning uh, is, appears in various forms. The word is parakaleo or paraklesis. Uh, it is a word that could be translated to encourage or to comfort or literally 
to advocate for, to run alongside, and to come to somebody's aid. You may know this. This is actually the word in its noun form that's used to describe or to uh, um, uh, uh, denote the work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, in texts like John 14 and John 16, the Lord Jesus says, I will send you the parakletos or the paraclete, which is translated in our New Testaments variously the, the comforter or the helper or the advocate, or we could say the one who is called alongside to assist us and to come to our aid. So, so the same root word that's used to describe the work of the Holy Spirit, that same root word is used in the various words that are used to describe uh, this function of encouragement that we're to dispense toward one another in the church body, uh, to encourage, to help, to comfort, to, to come alongside and to aid and to assist one another. And this is the word we have in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 11. Uh, therefore, encourage. Uh, Dio paracaleta. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Uh, now, 1 Thessalonians is an epistle filled with hope and expectation. Uh, Paul, at a number of points, is looking ahead to the coming day of the Lord, and he's telling the Thessalonian Christians about the coming resurrection. And in this chapter in particular, chapter 5, he's just got done telling them uh, that, that we're not going to remain asleep, that we're going to rise with Christ. And then he says, therefore, encourage one another and build one another up. You have a very similar command earlier in 1 Thessalonians in chapter 4, verse 18. Again, after talking about the coming of Christ, he says, therefore, encourage one another with these words. And he will do it a third time in 1 Thessalonians 5, 14, if you look just a few verses on. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage or comfort the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. It's three times. In 1 Thessalonians, in close proximity, we're told to encourage one another as a matter of biblical directive. In 2 Corinthians chapter 13, as Paul is concluding his admonitions to the Corinthian church, in verse 11 he says this, Finally, brothers, rejoice, aim for restoration, comfort or encourage one another. The writer to the Hebrews is especially concerned that Christians take seriously uh, the need to regularly, even daily, encourage and exhort and comfort one another. Uh, the writer to the Hebrews recognizes that the Christians to whom he is writing uh, perhaps may be entertaining various doubts about the faith. They're experiencing opposition and persecution. Some of them he's concerned are showing signs perhaps even of falling away. And it's in that context that we have these words from the writer to the Hebrews, Hebrews 3, verses 12 through 13. He says, Take care, brothers. Lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort, there's our word again, Allah paracaleta, but exhort, encourage, come alongside one another with aid every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We're to be aware that. Uh, we have remaining sin, we should be introspective, and we're to be warned that there could be an unbelieving heart within us, and we're to examine ourselves. And then the, the command that's given, the directive that's given in connection with that self-analysis is that we're to encourage one another, that we're to come alongside one another, that we're to exhort one another every day as long as it is called today. And again, the writer to the Hebrews makes a similar admonition, Hebrews 10 
verses 24 and 25. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. There are many other texts we can look at. This directive, this command is given to us in a number of places in the New Testament, but I don't think I need to belabor the point. All I want to draw your attention to under this first heading is that very simply as a matter of biblical directive, biblical command, we are called to engage in the happy work, the good work of encouraging one another, uh, to come alongside one another with aid and with comfort and with help and with encouragement. Now consider with me secondly, we've seen the directive to encouragement. Now secondly, biblical models of encouragement. Biblical models of encouragement. There are dozens, of course, in the Bible. We'll just consider a few. The first, and certainly the most important, is actually God Himself. The first biblical model of encouragement is God Himself. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, listen to how God is described. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions, so that we may be able to comfort those who are, any, who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Paul is saying God is a model of comfort for us. He is the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort, and we're to comfort others in the church, and we're to do so with the very comfort that God gives to us, models for us in His relationship to us. Romans 5 and verse 5, Paul again refers to God as the God of endurance and encouragement. Uh, That is the God who is the source of all endurance and perseverance in the lives of believers and the source of all encouragement in the lives of Christian people. I love how Paul describes God in 2 Corinthians verse 7, verses 5 and 6. Paul says, for even when we came into Macedonia, listen to how Paul describes himself, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. This is Paul's experience. Fighting without, fear within, we have no rest. Verse 6, but God, who comforts the downcast, who parakaleo, who comes alongside and brings aid and assistance, God who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. What does God do to bring comfort to Paul in this state of unrest, fighting without, turmoil within, he sends a brother to him. That's the tangible expression of God's comfort for the Apostle Paul and his companions. We should appreciate that God, in His very nature, is a God of encouragement and comfort. He's called the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort. He is the one who uh, parakaleos His people, comes alongside with aid for His people. One instance of this in the Old Testament Uh, that you might think of uh, after the judgments that God announces on the people of Israel in uh, through the prophet Isaiah. Uh, It's not a cakewalk or a joyride, the first 39 chapters or so of Isaiah's prophecy. But then in chapter 40 begins this section on the hope of the Messiah, uh, the hope of Israel, uh, looking forward to the coming of the Christ. And this is how that section starts. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem 
and cry to her that her warfare is ended and that her iniquity is pardoned. Here's Israel in a desolate state, and God comes with words of comfort that are ultimately going to be focused on the coming of the Messiah himself. Our God is a God of comfort and encouragement. Now, the second model of encouragement I'll commend to you is actually the comfort and consolation of Israel, spoken of in the prophet Isaiah, and it's the Lord Jesus himself. The Lord Jesus Christ, in his earthly ministry and in his ministry now, today, is a model to us of encouragement and comfort. Now, think of how ready the Lord Jesus was with words of comfort and encouragement to his disciples. How often does he say to them, take heart, be of good cheer, do not be afraid, fear not, uh, peace be with you, peace I bring to you. And, and those words from the Lord Jesus were often given to the disciples at their points of greatest anxiety and fear and pressure. In the upper room, which I'm looking forward to considering with you in the fall in John chapter 16, Jesus is telling them that they can expect persecution, but he says to them, take heart, be of good cheer, take courage, be encouraged. I have overcome the world. After the resurrection, some disciples are doubting. The Lord Jesus appears to them. What's the first words on his lips? Peace be with you. A word of comfort, a word of encouragement. You might think of the experience of the Apostle Peter uh, when, when he is uh, just before the death of the Lord Jesus. There they are, and, and, and the Lord Jesus predicts that Peter is going to deny the Lord. He says that Satan has asked for you uh, that he might sift you as wheat. Every time I read that verse, I imagine Peter, like, what did you say, Lord? You said no, right? Yeah. He says, Satan has asked for you that he might sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And after you have turned again, that is repented, after you have turned again, go and strengthen your brothers. He's there with a word of encouragement. In Peter's hour of greatest need, he says, I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And though Peter would fail to some degree, thankfully not to the shipwreck of his faith, he says, then you turn, Peter, and you be an encouragement to your brothers. You strengthen your brothers. This was the Apostle Paul's experience. In two places, he speaks of the Lord being present with him. He's appearing before the Jewish council in Acts 23. And it says there that the Lord came to Paul. The Lord Jesus appeared to him and said, take courage. And Paul, reflecting on a similar episode in 2 Timothy chapter 4, he says that everyone abandoned me. Everyone was away from me, gone from me. They had forsaken me, but the Lord stood with me, and he strengthened me. He brought strength and comfort and courage to me in my hour of need. Well, the Lord Jesus did not only come to the aid of the Apostle Paul or the aid of the Apostle Peter, he comes also to our aid to encourage us. He sympathizes with us and he prays for us, and the fact that he prays for us is meant to engender a sense of encouragement and strength and confidence within us to persevere in the faith. The writer, again, the writer of the Hebrews gets across this point in Hebrews 4, verses 14 through 16. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then 
with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That is, the Lord Jesus is our high priest. He's carrying on this function for us now. He's sympathetic to us. He prays for us. He's a friend to us, even now. And that's to embolden us and to encourage us and to fill us with strength and with confidence to therefore approach God in prayer, expecting that we will find grace to help in our time of need. As comforting as it is to hear Jesus' words of encouragement in various scenes with His disciples, as encouraging as it is to know that Jesus prays for us, the greatest of all encouragements that Jesus gives to us is the gospel itself. The good news of what God has done in Christ for sinners in His incarnation, His death, and His resurrection. The angels called it glad tidings of great joy. William Tyndale, speaking of the gospel, said this, Evangelion, that word that we call the gospel, is a Greek word and signifieth good, merry, glad, and joyful tidings that maketh a man's heart glad and maketh him sing and dance and leap for joy. It's the word of encouragement. It's the word of comfort that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners like you and me. Uh, that is the word of encouragement He speaks to every soul here in this place. Uh, there's a song we sing. Uh, it's kind of old English, but bear with that older language. Jesus sinners does receive word of surest consolation, word all sorrow to relieve, word of pardon, peace, salvation. Not like this could comfort give, not like this could encouragement give. Jesus sinners does receive. That word of the gospel is the word of encouragement to every sin-sick soul that wants to be done with sin and wants eternal life in Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus is to us a model of encouragement in His words, in His prayers for His disciples, in His presence with His people, and in the very gospel that He came to embody and proclaim. A third model I'll put before us is the Apostle Paul. God Himself, the Lord Jesus, third model we see, especially in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul. If you read Paul's letters, there are 13 of them preserved for us in the New Testament, um, you will realize very quickly Paul was an encourager. He just exudes encouragement. He knows how to be critical. He knows how to, um, to bring along a word of correction. But at the same time, in every single one of his letters, they begin with some sort of expression of thankfulness to God, some sort of word of encouragement for the grace of God at work in his people. So one example would be 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, you can turn there or just listen as I read. 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 2, Paul writes this to the Thessalonian Christians. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. He's acknowledging various graces that the Lord has worked in them. He's encouraging them with these observations. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you. Verse 6, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. What an encouraging word from the Apostle Paul himself. You could imagine 
If we were the Thessalonian church, and here I come reading out this letter from the Apostle Paul, how stirred you would be and how strengthened and encouraged you would be by his observations of various works of grace in the lives of our church body, that he would undertake to identify and acknowledge specific things the Lord was doing in our midst to encourage us and to comfort us. Now, we all know that the Thessalonian church was Paul's favorite church. Uh, But would he write the same thing to a church he was less than pleased with? Maybe a church that was even disappointing to him, say, the church in Corinth. That church is a total mess. And you have some there that are accommodating the practice of sexual immorality in the church, and they're even boasting that they're very tolerant of this sin. There are people suing one another. Paul is concerned of various divisions in the church, divisions that are even uh, in, in, in... imposing upon the observance of communion itself. Just a total mess that congregation is. And yet even that congregation, Paul finds it in his heart to encourage them, to give them a word of comfort and encouragement. He says to them in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 4, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. That in every way you were enriched in Him in all speech and all knowledge even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you were not lacking in any gift. He's going to write 12, 13, 14 chapters later about how they don't understand spiritual gifts and all of that, but he wants to encourage them here at the beginning. You're not lacking in any gift. God's at work in you. God is doing things in your midst so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end Guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Even to this church that is failing in so many ways, Paul can still identify evidences of grace amidst that congregation and in their lives. I was going to read Romans 16, for the sake of time I will not, but there at the very end of that great epistle to the Romans, Uh, The the two passages I've just read to the Thessalonian church, the Corinthian church, very general words of encouragement, but Paul knew how to get specific. And you can see the various ones he lists in Romans 16, identifies particular things, commending Phoebe and Prisca and Aquila and Rufus, a choice man of God, uh, commending different ones for the grace of God at work in them. And again, imagine how encouraging that would have been to those saints looking on to those letters. We could consider other models of encouragement. Uh, Barnabas, that son of encouragement, that's what his name means. We could consider Jonathan, David's companion. We'll say a word about him in a moment. But I, I think you get the point. The Bible furnishes us with a host of models of biblical encouragement, uh, uh, people who knew how to speak a word of encouragement. That's modeled in God Himself, the Lord Jesus, and the Apostle Paul. But now consider with me thirdly and finally in the time that remains, the effects of encouragement. The effects of encouragement. Now, one of the reasons I'm preaching this sermon in this series is because it's my observation that the free and frequent practice of encouragement in the church is one of the most winsome and life-giving virtues that can be present within a church body. It just fills the church with happiness and with hope and with encouragement. But it's not only my observation, uh, but rather this is the testimony of Scripture. 
uh, that encouragement, frequent and free encouragement in our lives with one another is a handsome thing in God's eyes. It's a good and attractive and wonderful thing in God's eyes that brings about wonderful effects in our lives and in the church body. So we've seen already that the Bible directs us to make it our regular practice to encourage one another. That is to say, it's a matter of biblical command. We've seen it modeled in God Himself, the Lord Jesus and the Apostle Paul. Now briefly, let's meditate on some of the positive effects of encouragement. I'm just going to list five things. First of all, encouragement gladdens. Encouragement gladdens. Proverbs chapter 12, verse 25. Anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down, but a good word makes him glad. Anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down, but a good word makes him glad. I recently saw a man that was having back trouble, which is something of a pathetic scene, hunched over, you got your hand on your back, you're in pain. I've had back trouble in the past, and there's a certain solidarity you feel uh, with someone who has back trouble. You can't sit down, you can't stand up, you can't lie down, it's just constant pain. And I thought to myself, wouldn't it be wonderful if I had some sort of vial or some sort of injection or shot I can give to this guy uh, that would soothe the pain and would cause him to stand up straight and he'd be eased of that burden of a bad back. And what kind of cold-hearted person would I be if I had that vial in my pocket, I had that injection I could give him, and I withheld it from him? would be cold-hearted. Well, brothers and sisters, we have the vial of encouragement, the injection shot of a good word, and we should dispense it freely and frequently with our brothers and sisters. That's the image here in this passage. The man or woman is weighed down by a burden of anxiety like a bad back. We have our anxieties and fears and pressures that we feel, and we're worn down, but then comes the good word, the glad word, the word of encouragement, and it's like we can stand up straight, and anxieties are lifted off us, and our hearts are made glad. I've seen this often with moms and dads in the church. As a mother or a father, you can feel very easily discouraged by your children, very natural experience. This one uh, uh, is, is, has attitude problems, and this one can't focus on her schoolwork, and this one's always getting into trouble, and I'm such a terrible parent, and you feel anxiety, pressure, burden, and it's weighing you down like a bad back. And it's all you can think about, like when you have a bad back, you just think of that pain all the time. When you think of your kids, you're just discouraged. Why can't they get this, and am I just a total failure? And I've seen how when a brother or sister in the church just comes with a ready, good word of encouragement, how that immediately lifts that burden. You know, I talked to your boy after the service this morning. That's a good boy you got there. He gave me a nice handshake. He looked me in the eye. It's a fine young man you're raising. God has really blessed you and your spouse. You know, I I saw uh, your daughter out at Chick-fil-A the other day, and um, I just want to encourage you. The way she carried herself among her friends there, and she introduced me to each one, and um, the Lord is helping you in raising your girl. And I've seen the effect that has on weary and anxious parents. It's like, it's like that person bent over with back pain, they can stand up now. Maybe the Lord is working grace in our parenting. Maybe the Lord is using me in some small way in this child's life. Well, we have potential to do so much good, to gladden the hearts of others 
with a word of encouragement. Second effect, encouragement gladdens. Now, secondly, encouragement fattens. Encouragement fattens. Proverbs 15, verse 30, bright eyes gladden the heart. Good news puts fat on the bones. Now, this verse is not applauding the virtues of obesity, uh, but the picture is rather someone who is scrawny and malnourished and emaciated. And for such a one, putting fat on the bones would be a sign of vitality and strength and vigor. And Solomon says, bright eyes, good news, a good word puts fat on the bones. That is, it gives strength, it gives health, it gives vitality. There are lots of people who need to gain the weight of encouragement. Uh, Truett Cathy, the founder of Chick-fil-A, said, how can you identify someone who needs encouragement? Easy. That person is breathing. Uh, We all need encouragement. We all need uh, the fat of encouragement put on our scrawny and discouraged bones, and that's the case in the church. A lot of people in the church feel quite discouraged and downcast even regularly. I mean, not just seasonally in the ups and downs of life, quite regularly feel discouraged and insecure and depressed and downcast. They feel weak. They feel scrawny when it comes to their own sense of self-esteem, self-worth. They think low of themselves and their gifts. They're discouraged by ongoing sin and a lack of discernible progress in sanctification. Well, could it be that God has positioned you close to that brother or sister, to go to them and put fat on their bones through words of encouragement. Brother, I just want to encourage you. I've just seen some evident ways that God has gifted you. And um, I have been blessed by those gifts, and I think you're being a blessing to many. I just wanted to encourage you in this. Uh, Sister, I, I just want to share with you ways in which I've seen God work in your life by His grace. Uh, there's evident life, and and you're growing as a believer, and I've seen that over the last couple of years. I just wanted to encourage you with that. To such a one, it's like fat is put on the bones. Vitality and health is breathed into our lungs. I experienced that this past week. Uh, Monday was feeling just generally discouraged, had the Monday morning blues, was up early, was out walking, and just reflecting on my own inadequacies and weaknesses and failures. I'm not trying to solicit your sympathy or anything like that, but as everybody does. And my phone lit up with a text, random text, just someone not even in our church. I'd listened to a sermon from a couple months back. I said, hey, I, I listened to this message. It was an encouragement to me. I, I was helped by it. Thank you, brother, for, for, for preaching that message. It was a blessing to me. And it was like air was breathed into my lungs like fat was put on my scrawny, discouraged, disheartened bones. Encouragement has that effect. It fattens. Thirdly, third effect of encouragement. Encouragement gladdens. It fattens. Thirdly, encouragement sweetens. Encouragement sweetens. Proverbs 16, verse 24, gracious words are like a honeycomb. Sweetness to the soul and health to the body. Sweetness to the soul, like honeycomb. 
I bless God for the many people He has positioned in this church who are just ready always with gracious words, uh, with encouraging words, with sweet words. And doesn't that have the effect? Haven't we experienced that in our own church? There's a, a sweetness that comes with those who are ready with, with gracious words. You don't have to work for it. They're just ready to come alongside, speak gracious words to your life. To be ready with sweet words, gracious words, that is a handsome, good thing in God's eyes. Wouldn't it be good if God would create in each of our homes an environment that is sweet as honeycomb with encouragement? It's my observation, my observation, uh, that husbands and wives generally thrive under the encouragement of their spouses, and they generally wither when there is a lack of encouragement. Well, listen, your spouse, they may not tell you, but your spouse probably needs more encouragement than you would think. No one wants to sound needy all the time, like, I just need more encouragement. But I think all of us probably need more encouragement than we lead on. As you consider your spouse, your relationship with them, would the Lord lead you to be more ready with sweet and gracious words that would sweeten the home like honeycomb? In Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice, one of the central characters is Mr. Darcy. And he's described as a man who never looked at a woman but to see a blemish. Never looked at a woman but to see a fault, a failure, a blemish. Are you a Mr. Darcy in your marriage? Or a Mrs. Darcy? You don't see the things that should attract your encouragement, but man, it's very easy to see the things that attract your criticism. Well, listen, husbands, your wives can starve in your marriage for lack of regular, free and frequent, sweet, gracious, encouraging words. And wives, you can crush your husband's spirit by regular criticism and a failure to acknowledge with sweet words, gracious words, the work that God is doing in your husband's life. In the book that Pastor Chansky has authored that all of you are going to buy and read, uh, Pastor Chansky talks very transparently, openly, uh, about his honeymoon and how he felt it was wasted uh, in some ways because he spent so much of the time criticizing his wife. They'd have these little arguments and he'd criticize her for these little things that he's learning about her and all of that. He just said, that, that's no way to live. That doesn't contribute to the health of a marriage. Rather, sweet words, gracious words should be the environment of our homes. Our marriages can so easily become sour with criticism when they should be sweet with encouragement. But mark it down. One of the surest ways to health in a marriage is free and frequent words of encouragement. And what about uh, our children? Uh, one pastor has written, when's the last time you specifically and sincerely informed your child of an evidence of grace that you've observed in his or her life? If it's been longer than a week, it's been too long. If you aren't faithful to encourage, you can be sure you will eventually exasperate your child. But if you are faithful, then when the times for necessary correction come, and they will come, the adjustment will be far more effective because the environment you've created isn't correction-centered, but grace-centered. That's what the Proverbs are talking about, gracious words, sweet words. It's like honeycomb. It's like health to 
the body. But we shouldn't think only of our families. This is a series of sermons on the church. What would it look like uh, for all of us, every member playing their part, being ready with sweet and gracious words to speak to one another? It would just sweeten the church environment, brighten the church environment. There's a verse that speaks of honey bringing brightness to the eyes. Sweet words like honeycomb bring brightness to the eyes of brothers and sisters. Listen, it's, it's an underrated virtue. We sometimes use this word in a sort of negative sort of way. Oh, yeah, she's just really sweet, isn't she? Oh, he's a sweet guy. That's like a nice little trait that someone might have. Listen, to be ready with gracious words and sweet words with one another, male or female, doesn't matter, is a wonderful, attractive, good, commendable thing in God's eyes. So let's be ready, Emmanuel Church, with sweet and gracious words in our relationships with one another. Fourthly, encouragement gladdens, encouragement fattens, it sweetens. Fourthly, encouragement enlivens. It enlivens. Proverbs 18, verse 21. This is one of those texts, if you haven't read it in a while, it just sort of knocks you off your feet. Proverbs 18, verse 21. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruits. James warned us about this, right? James chapter 3, the power of the tongue, it sets a forest ablaze. Our tongues, our speech have so much potential to do harm, so much potential to hurt others. Death is in the power of the tongue, but the tongue can also bring life. Wonderfully, the tongue can bring life. It can enliven I read recently that the average person speaks 25,000 words per day. Seems like a lot, but apparently that's true. We speak 25,000 words a day on average. Now, you know what I'm going to ask. We had a whiteboard up here, and I wrote life and death, and we put all of your words under those headings. How many would be in the life column, and how many would be in the death column? Death and life are in the power of the tongue. I heard someone say recently of a Christian woman in our church, being around her is so life-giving. That's a sweet thing. Being around her is so life-giving. Don't you want to be a life-giver? Someone who, with their words of encouragement and comfort, bring life and enliven the cold spirit. What a great statement. Being around her is life-giving. No one likes a Debbie Downer. No one wants to be friends with Eeyore. Uh, but the life-giver, they're coming over to my house. I want to surround uh, uh, my table with people with life-giving speech. It's an attractive thing in the eyes of God's people, in the eyes of God Himself, to give life with the tongue. We have the ability, with our words, to speak life to people. There can be someone in the congregation so discouraged and so downcast, you can lift them up, bring life to them, simply with your words. You don't have to write them a $1,000 check. You don't have to 
make a meal for them, simply with undertaking to speak words of life to them, you can enliven their souls, enliven their hearts with words of encouragement. There's a young man I know, he's not in this church, and um, I suppose this would have been when he was in college. We'll just call him John Johnson. And then there was uh, Smithy Smith, Mrs. Smith we'll call her, okay? And uh, John, probably college age at this point, had, had grown up across the street from Mrs. Smith's house and was friends with Mrs. Smith's boys and was over there often, and they were kind of like a second family to John. And, 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 and John, as he came into adulthood, experienced uh, a number of years of great discouragement and even depression. And um, it had been a while since Mrs. Smith had seen John. And this wasn't her normal practice, but just thought one day, he came to mind she thought, you know what? I'm going to call John. I'm going to give him a call. Just see how he's doing. Try to encourage him. And she called him, and he answered the phone, and he's sort of surprised to learn this is Mrs. Smith. And she said, John, I'm just thinking about you. You came to mind. I want to encourage you. I want to let you know I prayed for you today. How are you doing? Are you doing well? What Mrs. Smith didn't know is that that very day, John was considering taking his own life. And here came this phone call from someone probably not thought of in quite some time. And just with simple words of encouragement, literally in John's experience, kept him from death and gave him life. Life and death are in the power of the tongue. And John to this day acknowledges that as a turning point, that this woman undertook just to heed the commands of Scripture and to bring good and gracious words to this brother, and it literally saved his life. Uh, you might know uh, the story of John Newton's relationship with William Cooper. John Newton was a great encourager. If your tank of encouragement is on E, go read the letters of John Newton. He was just gifted of God in a special way to encourage others. Uh, William Cooper, the great poet and hymn writer, uh, was troubled with some sort of, they would have called it melancholy. They'd even used the word madness to describe his condition, uh, but was severely uh, chronically depressed, and many times tried to take his own life. And it's a beautiful thing to read the journals of John Newton, uh, of him running across this orchard between their two houses, at two o'clock, three o'clock, four o'clock in the morning, and he's literally sitting there with towels around Cooper's wrists, his bleeding wrists, and he's reading him the scriptures, and he's singing to him, and he's seeking to comfort his discouraged and downcast brother with words of encouragement. And again, in William Cooper's experience, it was the life-giving words of John Newton that kept that brother alive. Well, has God positioned you in close proximity to a brother or sister in this church who might struggle with discouragement, maybe even despair? Could your words be a life-giving source for them to give them gracious, sweet, enlivening words of encouragement. Ephesians 4.29 says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. That is, talk that brings decay or death. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for the building up, as it fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. When I read that text, I think I'm looking from my window to give grace. I'm looking for my occasion. I want to say a word as fits the occasion to give grace and to build up. It's like uh, Rocky, the movie. You weren't thinking it was like Rocky, were you? 
But uh, who's the best character in the Rocky movies? It's definitely not Rocky. And it's not Apollo Creed, and it's not Adrian. The best character in the Rocky movies is Mick, the coach. Uh, the old Irish guy's in the corner, and Rocky comes back after uh, being slogged round after round, and he's there in the corner, and he's bloody and sweaty, and he's got nothing left to give. And Mick always knows exactly what to say to motivate Rocky. Mick gets in his ear. Come on, get up. You got another round in you. Get back in the ring, Rocky. You can do this. He believes in Rocky. And somehow, Rocky's always stirred. That strength comes. He's enlivened, and he gets back out there. Well, is there a brother and sister in this church? You can get in their ear with words of encouragement. Fifthly and finally, fifth effect of encouragement. And I'm aware the first four are essentially repeating some of the same things. This fifth one is somewhat different. Encouragement gladdens, encouragement fattens, encouragement enlivens. Fifthly, encouragement quickens. Encouragement quickens. What do I mean by that word? I mean that encouragement can have a quickening effect on people. Uh, it could, in the best sense of the word, inspire people to do things. Words of encouragement can actually motivate or quicken people to works of grace and kingdom service. You might consider Christ's many encouragements to His disciples. Uh, it's very soon after that most embarrassing episode in Peter's life, Christ comes with words of encouragement to restore him, and he recommissions him, Peter, feed my lambs, feed my sheep, do the work, go on. You can do this by my grace and by my Spirit's help. He quickens Peter for the work. How many times do you think Peter returned in his mind to those words from the Lord Jesus? You might consider Paul's encouragements to a young Timothy. Timothy, we think, was probably naturally timid. How many times? Paul says, Paul says, be ready, Timothy. Be of good courage. Stir up the gift of God that is within you. Go on, Timothy. Fight the good fight. Do the work, brother. Those words of encouragement that quicken Timothy to do the work of ministry there in Ephesus. Consider these words from Jonathan, David's companion and friend. 1 Samuel 23, verse 15. David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life. David was in the wilderness of Ziph and Horish. He was in the wilderness literally and in the wilderness spiritually. Saul is coming out to seek his life. And Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horish and strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, do not fear, for the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul, my father, also knows this. And the two of them made a covenant before the Lord, and David remained at Horish, and Jonathan went home. These words had a quickening effect on David. Don't fear, brother. Stand. Do the work. You will be king over Israel. And David's heart is encouraged, and he's quickened to continue in the path that God had set him on. Our words can have that effect on people. Uh, you've heard the term untapped potential. Makes me sick to my stomach to see untapped potential in a young person. 
Well, are there people in the church, you, you, you have identified gifts and graces in their lives, and maybe all they need is a little push out the door. Just a word of encouragement to say, brother or sister, I just want to encourage you. You are so effective in this particular area, and God has blessed you in this way, and I can see you serving God in these wonderful ways in the future. I just want to encourage you. This sort of life uh, is available to you by the help and grace of God if you would pursue it. If you want to serve God in this way, brother or sister, here's my word of encouragement. You can do it. I'm not talking about stroking someone's ego. or I understand we're all depraved and, and, and all of that. But it's a good thing to believe in our brothers and sisters and to believe in the grace of God at work within them and to say, you can do it. To, to give them encouraging words that quicken them to works of service and ministry. John Newton, that great encourager, did this for William Wilberforce. He was the instrument in God's hands, ever at Wilberforce's side encouraging him, go on, brother, go on, brother, you can do this. God has called you for such a time as this, and he's going to use you in this way. And it's probable without the cheerleading of John Newton that Wilberforce would not have known the success he knew in the ending of the slave trade in England. Encouragement becomes the means of stimulating Christians to greater service in Christ's kingdom. C.S. Lewis says, the humblest and at the same time most balanced and capacious minds praise most, while the cranks, misfits, and malcontents praise the least. Charles Schwab has said, I have yet to find the man, however exalted his station, who did not better work and put forth a greater effort under a spirit of approval than under a spirit of criticism. Listen to one more quote. This is from Mark Dever, pastor in Washington, D.C. So many times, Dever writes, I've seen men, particularly younger guys, act as if real leadership is shown in correcting others. That's why young men's sermons often scold. What they haven't figured out is that you can often accomplish more by encouragement. There are times to scold, but 80 to 90 percent of what you hope to correct can be accomplished through encouragement. If you look back at your life and consider who influenced you the most, you will probably find that it's the people who believed in you. So consider, brothers and sisters, how encouragement can quicken us to acts of service in Christ's kingdom. Uh, consider how you might come alongside a brother or sister with a word of encouragement to propel them to greater acts of service in the body of Christ than they've yet achieved. I need to draw to a close. My time is gone. Uh, but let me just close with this word. If, if you're listening to this sermon and you're hearing me extol the virtues of encouragement and drawing our attention to these verses in the Proverbs. Um, don't make the mistake of thinking, well, this, this is just really great. This is really nice. This is very sweet. Uh, a community of people who are very positive and encouraging. This is great. The world needs a whole lot more of that, a whole, whole lot more attaboys. And uh, we should believe in each other. This is, this is great. I'm encouraged to hear this group talking about this. Let me just make this clear, if I haven't made it clear in this sermon. Uh, we have no reason to be encouraged, and we have no encouragement to give to others apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, if you do not know the Lord Jesus 
as your Savior, if you've not had your sins forgiven through the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ, you have no right or ability to enter into anything I've been talking about this morning. Your sins have created between you and God a chasm, a great divide. You are alienated from God. And, and there are no words in these texts of encouragement for you if you are apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. Rather, you do not have reason to take courage and take heart, but rather reason to fear the judgment. But to you, uh, I reserve the greatest word of encouragement that I can give you. The greatest word of encouragement in all the Bible. The word of encouragement that those of us who are Christians are clinging to even now. And that is that Jesus Christ receives sinners. Uh, that He came to save sinners. Uh, that He came into the world, was born of the Virgin Mary. That He went to the cross to suffer the punishment due to our sins and rose from the grave in triumph over sin and is now seated at the right hand of God the Father so that sinners like you can be saved. There's no greater word of consolation or comfort or encouragement that I can give you. And I'm throwing it out there, calling upon you, asking you to lay hold of it, to take the word of encouragement and comfort that's offered in the Scriptures, to lay hold of that great comfort and consolation of Israel, even Jesus Christ the Messiah, to embrace Him as your Savior. And you will know all of the encouragement and comfort that I've been speaking about and even more than I know how to convey. And then you will have resources with which to encourage and comfort other people in the community of encouragement, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you, the Father of all mercies, and the God of all comfort, the God of all endurance, and the God of all encouragement. We thank you for the consolation you have given us through the gospel, uh, that you came to a sin-sick world, created order and active rebellion against you, and you came in love, sending forth your own Son in human flesh to live and to die for the sins of His people. And He now stands ready as a Savior to receive all those who believe on Him in repentance and faith. Is there any greater word of encouragement we could hear? Help us to lay hold of it even now. Convince us that there is hope for the hopeless and there is courage to be had for those who live in fear of judgment if they would lay hold of Christ. Please, Lord, create within this particular local body uh, an ethos, an atmosphere, a culture of free and frequent and regular encouragement. Stir us up, we pray, uh, to speak words, sweet words, gracious words to our brothers and sisters. Create that kind of environment within our church body, we pray. Uh, encourage our hearts now as we continue to worship, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Please stand as we sing, Jesus, what a friend for sinners. <laughs> 